Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about the Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in Placentia, California at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? <laughs> My name is Andy. I work on staff here as the creative director of Vox Community. And uh, we are crazy excited uh, to have you guys here uh, week after week. Uh, you know, if this is uh, your first time coming, um, we're really quirky, strange community for a lot of reasons. One, we started this out of a podcast. And to my understanding, that hasn't been done yet. So hooray for us being pioneers. <laughs> and hooray for millennials. Anyone? I, don't I really don't care. Um, I get, I get a lot of accusation of, of that type of thing, but that's why we're all safe to belong. Um, so the podcast helps set us up uh, for what one of our core convictions here at Vox is, and that church should be the safest place to be able to talk about anything. Um, and that's really what that slogan is that you see on our shirts and what we're talking about here is that um, you're safe to belong. And, and uh, last week on, on that Vox podcast, we, we, we had a really fantastic conversation um, with the with a, a homosexual male who had um, thoughts about how we talked about affirming or not affirming issues. And what we presented is, is really the core of the entire thing, is that we really wanted to start a community that could embody um, people who have opposing views and be in the tension. And so it means that folks that are here, um, you may have never been to church before, you may have been hurt by the church, uh, you may have been Christian for 20, 25 years. Me personally, I've been a Christian now for over 16 years. Um, but it means that we could all be here um, to safely process anything and um, make it the safest place to talk about anything. So it means that all of us here are broken, and it means that all of us here are willing to pursue um, and learn about who this Jesus person is. And um, that's really what, what it's about for us. A lot of us here are really big fans of Jesus, and um, our hope is to make him beautiful. For those of you who are curious and really trying to come and, and find out what this is, maybe you were dragged here by a friend. Uh, maybe today you came and you, re you need a nap. Um, that's going to be totally fine. We're totally cool with that. <laughs> I, I used to sleep in church all the time. Um, but yeah, so what a, a, a couple ways that we, uh, we want to grow and make sure that, um, that what we're doing is actually working is we embody this thing called lifelong learning. Um, during the slides when you guys are sitting down, we have an email that's feedback at voxoc. Uh, dot com. Uh, we would love to hear uh, your guys' thoughts, um, hear you guys' stories in a moment. I'm going to bring out Jacob, and uh, he's going to get a chance to share his story. Um, and we've been doing that ever since we started this thing. And um, we shared uh, some really amazing thoughts about uh, telling our stories, and uh, Jacob will have um, some notes about that. Uh, in addition, if, uh, if you're familiar with the idea of prayer, uh, we do have an email that if you're looking to get prayer uh, beyond uh, the opportunities uh, you'll get today to pray with somebody, you can email prayer at voxoc.com as well. And also voxoc.com is our website. So uh, if you're looking to participate, you're looking to go a little bit farther than just sitting in the seat, which is exactly what we would want, um, there's a number of ways that you can actually participate. Uh, one is there's folks here practicing uh, generosity as a stretch of their faith. And so uh, in the participation boxes over there, you'll see people throughout the service um, giving to that. Uh, in addition, if you saw some note cards out on the plaza uh, where you, you could tell us a little bit about you, um, that's also where you can drop those as well. Um, and then also uh, on September 7th, we have our next New to Vox dinner. So that's where we get a chance to share with you guys um, the depth of our vision and what we're really trying to accomplish with this whole thing. And we'd love to meet you and get to know who you are. So that would be the very first step as far as uh, extending uh, what you're doing here if you want to participate uh, in our community. Um, 
So to let you guys know what we're going to be doing a little bit today, uh, Jacob's going to come out in a minute, and he's going to share his story. Um, after that, we're going to do some music, and I'll talk a little bit more after the story about, about how we engage in music and why that's important in the church. Um, today, we have uh, a wonderful guest speaker, uh, Dr. Joanne Jung, is going to be speaking with us today, so we're all very excited about that. Um, and then we're going uh, to get a chance uh, to participate in communion at the table, and then, of course, we're going to do some more singing, um, which I know everybody loves to sing, don't you? Right. You don't have to. That's the, I love the balance of that because that actually told me everyone who doesn't like to sing versus who does like to sing. <laughs> so, okay. All right. So, yeah, at this time, we're going to go ahead and uh, welcome Jacob out here. Hello there. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so Jacob is on our launch team. He is one of the first 80 that said, hey, let's do something crazy and let's start a church. Um, and so uh, last week he came to us and said, um, hey, I think I'm willing to share my story. And after weeks and weeks of hearing a lot of different folks get up here um, and express who they are before you guys, we're just learning how um, this is really helping us to get a chance to understand each other on levels that um, in all of my own church experiences, I've never been able to feel that kind of uh, reality and sensitivity and depth um, to who we are in this way. So, um, so that said, uh, Jacob is going to go ahead and share with us a little bit here. And... Uh, Take it away. Good morning. Um, so I grew up as a pastor's kid. Don't hold that against me. Um, I decided at some point, and I'll go through my story, that I would become a pastor and have my own kids and make them go through the same drama that I experienced as a child. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm married. I have three wonderful kids. Um, and I was born and raised into a Christian home. Um, I'm not going to debate whether the life they live is really what God is calling them to do. Um, at the age of five, my mom passed away of adult-onset leukemia, and I don't think my dad was probably prepared to handle that. Um, I'm a husband and a, a father. I don't know if my wife did. I would died. I would be able to handle that as well. Um, his way of handling that was to find a new wife and get married 14 months later and basically tell us, you know, this is your new mom. God provided you a new mom. Don't ever mention her name, that experience ever again. So that was a start as a Christian in a Christian home, growing up as a pastor's kid, um, which was just, it was hard. Um, it wasn't perfect? No, it was okay. not by any means perfect. I'm pretty sure if you grow up in a Christian home, yes. everything's perfect. Okay. Yeah, I, I have the, the life that kind of everyone says, oh, you live in a Christian home. I got married, and my wife's like, oh, I'm going to enter into this relationship, get married, and I'm going to have this wonderful family. Um, that's so far from the truth. Um, as a kid, I was never allowed really to do anything outside of the box. Uh, we had very legalistic rules, um, very stringent kind of like expectations. Um, Christianity was not a relationship. It was more of a checklist. So here you go. We go to church Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, and in between that we have VBS and Awanas and church prayer meetings and baptisms and whatever else comes with the picture. And as the pastor's kid, you're supposed to look good and don't talk and don't do anything else to make me look bad. And I am a type 1, type A, do everything right by the rules. So I was very good at that, um, although it wasn't very healthy for myself. Um, growing up in church, I had a sense that people needed to be cared for, but we weren't allowed to do that because we weren't supposed to be involved with people because people were messy. And when you get saved and you come to Jesus, everything's good. If you did drugs, they're gone the next day. If you cussed and smoked, you didn't do that the next day which was really weird because I grew up in Christian school from the time I was three till the time I finished graduate work, and that was what I was taught. 
Um, in my house, my dad was the boss. Typical Dutch home. He was the one in charge. That was the way it was at church. No one questioned him. Everything revolved around him. Um, and if you know me, I'm not very good with that. I like to buck the rules in the system or at least question them. I didn't like do what was wrong, but I always wanted to know why. And that I would was, do what was wrong. That was, my brother did what was wrong. It, it, it led it a different path. I was too good at like, you know, the checklist for Christians. I was good. Um, I got married in 2000, um, which was the best decision I could have ever made besides getting saved. Um, and about five years after being married, my dad kind of approached myself and my wife and said, hey, I'd like you to come be my executive pastor. Um, we had had some falling down. I've never had a good relationship with him. And it was kind of one of those things I felt, okay, Lord, you're opening this door. We prayed for about six months and we jumped on, on ship, um, hoping that we could be the change that we saw needed to happen. Um, very shortly into that, I knew I had made the wrong decision. But at this point, I had three kids, a wife that stayed home, and I couldn't find another job when the housing crisis all crashed and stayed there for longer than we probably should have. Um, over that period of time, you know, my dad was not really good at treating my wife the way he should have, my kids the way he should have. Um, fast forward the story to November of 2014. Um, I'm a big, huge Christmas fan. I like Christmas lights and all kinds of things Christmas on the outside of my house. So I dragged my wife and my kids outside, and my oldest was 12 at the time. Uh, we were outside, and we were putting up lights, and he says, hey, Dad, i got to tell you something. I'm like, okay. He goes, but I don't want you to get mad. And I said, all right. I'm not going to get mad if you're going to talk to me, but go ahead. And he said, um, I have to ask why is Opa such a hypocrite? And Opa means grandpa in Dutch. And my wife was standing there, and she just like immediately had like these tears in her eyes and had to walk away. And I just felt like this knife in my back because I had known for many years this is who he was. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he's really good at church, but the second we get home, he's off the clock so he doesn't pray, and he can use bad language, and he can make fun of people, and he can, you know, we don't talk to gay people, we don't talk to black people, we don't talk to this person, we don't talk to that person. And I was like, oh. So my wife and I are like, we need to get out of here. So I said, well, let's wait till the end of school year. Kids are in private school. Let's we'll just figure out what happens. Three weeks later, get to work, talking to my dad. And he, I, I confront him on things that probably should be, and he doesn't like it. And he basically told me in a string of not so many great cuss words to pack my crap and leave, um, which I did, because this had happened a couple times before, and I laid some boundaries in line that I wouldn't do that. Uh, so my wife and I left had our first church, my first time ever going anywhere besides the church denomination I'd attended. We went to EV Free on New Year's Eve in 2014. And I was convinced I was going to sit in the very back row. My wife and my kids and family were just going to go to church and just be church people because church people are a bunch of hypocrites and Pharisees anyway, so why don't we just go in the back row and not do anything? Uh, about a month later, we got involved in Rooted. We're surrounded by 10 or 12 of some of the most amazing, helpful people that um, I could have asked for during the last year and a half. Um, and we've been taught to love people. And I think in, in all this, as wrapping it up, when I left where I was at and kind of came to EV Free and then came through Vox, I'm like, yeah, we need to love the unlovable. We need to love those that struggle with this and struggle with Christianity. And I found myself going so far to the other end, going, those stinking hypocrites and those Pharisees, and my dad is such a jerk, and these people... And I think, you know, for me, it was a real God moment going for myself that 
there are so many people in the church that claim to be Christians, and I can't judge their heart. And they are walking along the path of their rule book like they think they are, and they are leaving so many wounded people in the process. But I have to learn to love them, which I am not at that phase right now because I, I pray for my dad, and then there are some days I wonder why he still is walking on the face of the earth. Um, a couple things. I, I know now, standing here in August of 2016, so it's been almost two years, this has been the most painful situation I've had to go through. Because in one day, I lost my job, my wife didn't work, I lost my family, which really wasn't a family to begin with, I lost a church that really wasn't a church at all, it was a whole bunch of rules that I didn't know about, I lost every friend that I'd had because I'd been there my whole life, and within a month after that, not one person from there got in touch with my wife or myself, and we walked this road alone. Um, I can look back, we did not walk it alone, we've had friends and God people in our lives. Um, I would turn around in a second and do it all over again because I am not perfect today, but my relationship with the Lord is where it wants to be. And he's working on me and my wife and my kids. Um, I share my story today not because, you know, I had some big drug issue, sex problem. I was the typical perfect Christian pastor's kid. And it doesn't matter where you're at in life. God has you walking the road for a purpose. And there are people in this room that have similar stories to you that need to know them. Um, two things that have got me through from God's word. And then I'm done. Jeremiah 29, 11. Basically, God knows the plans he has for your life. I was haunted with that verse for about eight months before my dad told me to get out. I have it tattooed on my, sh my arm. I was a baby. It was my 40th birthday present. And you got a pass, too. It hurt, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the second thing is Philippians 1, 6 that God's going to do the work in me. He started it. He's going to finish it. There's nothing I can do except for walk the road. So that's my story in a nutshell. Awesome. Let's give him a round of applause. Um, so that's what we've been doing every week is, is giving these opportunities. And thank you for being so bold today and having that kind of courage to get up here and talk with all these folks who have no idea who you are. Um, we talked about something this morning kind of in our team rally, and I really loved what you said, and I wanted you to share that today, is that um, basically you'd said that, you know, church is a place full of lonely people, and you talked about how stories were beneficial for that. Can you just kind of share that note again? Yeah, I, in our prayer time this morning before, we were talking about the feedback from the stories, and I think one thing for myself and for my wife, especially the two of us, is we came, I came from a very lonely position. Being a pastor's kid, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, a club like being the president's kid or I don't know what. It's but, like being the president's kid. Yeah, exactly. It's not really all that wonderful. <laughs> but you feel lonely. I mean, we're surrounded. I mean, I was in a church. My dad's a, a local pastor with 3,000 people in a church, but I felt so lonely that there was no one around. We couldn't share anything. So I think when people are up here sharing their stories, it helps me knowing that there might be someone sitting over here or over there that struggles with the same thing. And I think the enemy uses that and those feelings in our head to make us secluded from other people. So I think the big thing today is we are all about being a community. And unless you step out and talk to people, you'll never know. But you're not alone. Absolutely not alone. And I think that's a, not to get too spiritual, but I think that's, that's a tactic that the enemy uses on the American church and the American culture to make us feel alone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, thank you. What, I, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go ahead and I'll, I'll pray for you and, and pray for our morning. Uh, we're going to go ahead and do some music right now. 
And um, to help you guys kind of understand if, uh, you know, if, if church isn't the usual place you find yourself on a Sunday morning, um, the whole idea of worship was really at a time was, um, it was basically just prayers with music. So a lot of these words is, are kind of oriented towards, um, towards God, you know, as a person and as um, an entity that, that we can have a relationship with. Um, we extend a ton of permission in this room for wherever you're at, whatever you do. If sitting and just listening to these songs right now is where you need to be, we're going to have some folks standing up and raising their hands, just like they would at like a concert, because some of us really love Jesus and singing like, Jesus is our boyfriend songs. And so you don't have to feel pressure to do what they do. Um, if you want to go outside and talk to some of our folks that are on our team out there just to kind of get a break and clear your head, whatever it is, you are completely permitted to do all of those things or any of them. Um, as a way for us to say thank you for being here and hopefully, you know, like as we said, like having these conversations is our way of trying to embody like the truth of being safe to belong and really trying to make church the safest place to talk about anything. So uh, I'll go ahead and pray and then, um, and then Izzy will be able to take it away for us. So, oh, Lord Jesus, um, we're so privileged uh, to be in this room and just to be gathered here, Lord. Um, I just pray for uh, my brother Jacob right now um, as we still sit in this lifelong process of uh, reconciliation um, with his father, Lord. And um, we pray for his family and that around it, that, that you would come into it, um, that you would find your place uh, to reconcile, Lord. And um, we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to create a community here in a place where um, we all have a seat at the table, Lord. Um, as you sat with Pharisees and the religious elite, you also sat with us who were broken. And Lord, um, in that same way, give us the hearts to extend love uh, to both of those communities. While we struggle, as so many of us are believers and Christians and are the own Pharisees of our day, Lord, we put that before you um, so we can see the world through your eyes, Lord, as we welcome everybody to this table. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm Joanne, and uh, I've been part of Vox since the beginning of it. Uh, I have uh, been married to Norm for going on almost 30, oh, over 30, oh, almost 39 years. And uh, we have four adult children. Uh, I have one son in love and one grandson. <laughs> and uh, I teach at Biola University. I have the honor of teaching there. I tell people it's probably illegal, the amount of fun that I have teaching there. Uh, so here we go. I've been at Vox again from the beginning. And over the past, what, 12 weeks, we have heard Mike speak. And we've heard him uh, talk about Jesus being seen by the Pharisees as the lawbreaker, the lawless, the mamzer, the scandalous, the blasphemer. And this is how the Pharisees saw Jesus. The Pharisees were the religious and political group. They ministered to essentially the common folks, probably people like us. And they had quite a bit of a following. You know where they got their name from, right? The Pharisees? Well, they weren't fair, you see. <laughs> and because they were so popular, when Jesus comes on the scene, there's quite a bit of friction. Because now we see that people are following Jesus. Huh. So then it's the Pharisees who sought to discredit him theologically and socially and to trap him and then ultimately to plan for his murder, to kill him. So what we're going to be looking at are two miracles today. I'm going to set up with one miracle and then uh, we're going to jump into the second one. I'm going to show you how two miracles you may or may not have ever heard of are linked together. 
The miracles that we're going to be looking at are going to be found in the Gospel of John. Gospel simply means good news. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the, good, are the Gospels, the good news according to Matthew, the good news according to Mark, Luke, and John. And if we pull back a little bit on the context that surrounds these two miracles, we're going to see, huh, I think there's more here than I've ever seen before or that I never even saw before. So these two miracles are linked together. First miracle is the feeding of 5,000. And I'm just going to talk you through this miracle. Again, it may sound very familiar to you, or it may not be familiar to you at all. It's going to be found in John's Gospel, starting with chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime, and I'm going to comment as I read through this. Okay, this is proof that I'm not 40 anymore. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people, get it, popular. Contrary, now losing popularity perhaps with the Pharisees. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the, miracul the miraculous signs he performed on the sick. So why were they following him? Because of the miracles. Then Jesus went up on a mountain, up on a mountainside, and sat down with his disciples. And oftentimes rabbis would sit when they would teach, so he's probably doing something with his disciples. The Jewish Passover, the Passover festival was near. Now, isn't that interesting that John mentions the Passover? Because at the end of chapter 5, he mentions Moses' name. File that because you're going to find some things that are peppered throughout these miracles that keep linking us, the reader, back to someone that you are probably familiar with. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already, Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. He was going to do a miracle. He knew that. And one of the reasons Jesus did miracles was to show the compassion of God his Father. So Jesus is going to do a miracle, and Philip answers him. Hmm. Jesus, eight months of wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Do you know what you're asking for, Jesus? That's a ton of money, and not everyone will be filled. Then another one of his disciples, his name is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother spoke up. Now, if you know anything about Andrew, and even if you don't, you're going to find that he, on the strength finders test, was a connector. He's a wooer. So here we find Andrew. Andrew finds a young boy. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many barley? It was the bread of poor people. So it gives you a characteristic of the crowds that were following Jesus. Poor and numerous. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Well, 5,000 men. But if they had a wife, if they had some children, you're talking about 15 plus thousand people. You're talking about a lot 
of people sitting down, watching Jesus, perhaps listening to Jesus. Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks. Isn't that cool? Jesus gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. Five loaves, two fish. He did the same with the fish. Can you imagine? Five loaves, two fish from a young boy, poor boy, who gives up everything. And another loaf comes up, another loaf comes up, another loaf comes up, another loaf comes up. Oh, here are a few more fish come up, a few more fish come up, a few more fish, probably pickled, fish come up. Enough that everyone is full and with leftovers. When they had, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over from those who had eaten. After the people saw this miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet. Hmm, take note of that. Who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force. And the word here is they wanted to, they seized him. They wanted to seize him and force him to be king. But instead, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Who might you be reminded of? Moses, yeah. Charlton Heston, <laughs> right? Prince of Egypt, prophet, mountain, bread from heaven. Keep these things in mind. Moses. Moses was known as the prophet. But did this miracle, did something similar to this happen before? Were the people probably mindful that this might have happened before? Might this be an indication of the Messiah? They would, there would have been messianic expectations in the, in the first century. What would, mes, uh, what would the Messiah look like? What would he be doing? What, was, what might have been some characteristics of him? So as we'll see in 2 Kings, we see that something like this happened before. And it happened with Elijah. He too had bread multiplied. Enough to fill many. But when Jesus multiplies the bread, it is on a grander scale, far and above. And we see this abundance, which is characteristic of God's kingdom, abundance. A man came from Baal Shalazah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread, baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. And then the next, let's see what Deuteronomy says. Oh, I'm sorry, but Elijah, we can finish that, I always forget. Elijah answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Sound familiar? Then he set it before them and they ate and they had some left over according to the word of God. Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. 
So already from the Old Testament we see a miracle like this has happened before. And Moses is saying, look forward to someone who, would one, who one would call prophet. And what do we see at the end of that one section? Surely this is the prophet, the one who is to come into the world. This is interesting. Was Jesus a prophet? Yeah, but he was more than. And it's interesting that the people wanted to seize Jesus to make him king. What did they have in mind? And Mike has referred to this a few times before. What did they want? They wanted Jesus to be king. Why? To relieve them of the oppression that the Romans were placing on them. So the people were seeing a prophet before them and they wanted a king, perhaps in the same vein as King David, Israel's most beloved king, a military king. But the people's idea of a prophet and the people's idea of the king was so shallow. Wait, you've got 15,000 people and they want you to be king. You're at the start of this movement. Wouldn't 15,000 people be great to have? If you post something on Facebook, wouldn't it be kind of cool to have 15,000 likes? 15,000. And against conventional wisdom, what does Jesus do? He walks away. Can you imagine the people? Wait, wait. Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? Didn't we just see this miracle? Wouldn't we want him to be king? Isn't he the prophet? After all, if he were king, not only would we be alleviated of Roman oppression, but we'd have free filet of fish sandwiches any time we wanted. Wouldn't you want someone like that to be your king? Was he a prophet? Yes. But well beyond what they understood a prophet to be. This prophet. Was he king? He was already king. But their understanding of king was far too shallow. See, Jesus loves and values people far too much to let them walk away and settle for an inadequate view of himself. He loves and values them too much to do that. He knows that with an inadequate view of God, they would never be enough. It would never be enough for the life that he would offer. He needed the people to have a truer knowledge of God. And so he chooses to wait through their disappointment, and they were disappointed, perhaps even skeptical. And he allows for the disappointment and the skepticism in order to reveal more of who he is. So he walks away. You know, the crowds probably weren't the only ones who were disappointed and skeptical. The next miracle, and you'll see this up on the slide, is John 6, verses 16 to 21. And this is where we see Jesus taking the disciples, and he says, pulling together from other um, gospel accounts, he, he puts them in a boat, and he says, sail. Now, this is the Sea of Galilee at its widest point. It's about not, uh, eight miles wide. And he needs for them to sail. The disciples sail on without Jesus. Where's Jesus? He goes up to the mountain, and he prays. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a lake, 
And I mentioned it's about, oh, six or seven miles for where the disciples had to go from point A to point B. It's surrounded by mountains, and there's a, uh, a valley that cuts through. And through that valley comes very, oftentimes very strong winds, and oftentimes unexpected storms. When the winds kick up, a squall is produced, and these are very, very powerful winds. Now what we find in this story is that the disciples are about two or three miles in. There's no turning back. Let's pause a moment and see what John 16, John 6, 16 and 21 says. When evening came the, came, the disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and in the Gospel of John, when you read that word dark, it often refers to when Jesus is not present. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were frightened. I would be too. But he said to them, it is I, which can be translated, I am. I am. Do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. I don't know, is that another miracle? They're in the boat. The winds kick up. The disciples are rowing. They're two to three miles from the shore. There is no turning back. On the Sea of Galilee, I am told that with a motorboat in a, during a squall, for that length, it would take about one or two hours to cross. And here are the disciples in their non-motorized boat rowing. Now, in honor of the 2016 Rio Olympics, <laughs> I'm going to row. And I'm going to row. And I'm going to row. Because amid all of the efforts of the disciples, they really made little progress. And when we look at the other accounts of this one miracle, what we find is the disciples could be rowing anywhere from 6 to 12 hours before Jesus shows up. So they're rowing. And they're rowing. And they're probably thinking, so where's Jesus? What's he doing? Does he know we're here? Does he know this squall? Does he know we're making very little progress? Do you know there's a lot of water out here? Does he even care? And you're rowing. And maybe you're talking to your buddies and disciples are talking to one another. Wait. He's powerful, right? He just multiplied all the, all the five loaves and two fish, right? He just fed 15,000 people plus with 12 baskets of leftovers. He's the Messiah, right? But wait, why did he walk away? Is he the Messiah? Could he be the Messiah? He just walked away from 15,000 people. 
kind of leader is that? What kind of movement is that? We gave up our lives for this, and what am I doing? I'm rowing a boat, stuck in the middle of a lake, not going anywhere fast. Did Jesus know where the disciples were? Did he care? Was he praying for them? Was he aware of the struggles that they faced? Were they aware, was he aware of their disappointment, their doubts, their fears? Was he aware of those? Could he be the Messiah? And then he walks on water. He approaches the disciples walking on water. What we see, and perhaps what the disciples also knew, was that there are some verses in the Old Testament that show us the relationship between God and water, and that the sea was such a powerful image of uncontrolled cosmic chaos, and that was known in the ancient world. But we also see that the seas do God's bidding. Let's look at a few of these. There are five. From Job, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. From Psalm 29, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Psalm 77. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Psalm 89. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. And lastly, from Psalm 107. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and they brought them out, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. So Jesus walks on water. These were his actions. And he demonstrates that he does what only God could do. Now I'm just going to take a little sidebar here. Note the observations. We mentioned the mountain and the Passover and the bread from heaven and now the multiplied bread that Jesus uh, and the fish that Jesus um, did in his previous miracle. And if you remember Charlton Heston, he walked through the Red Sea. But now Jesus walks on the water. So what Jesus is showing us is, folks, he is God. That Jesus did only what God could do. And then he says this. So his actions were that Jesus walked on water, and now here are his words. I am. Semicolon. I am. What does that mean? 
Well, all throughout the Old Testament, God says, and especially to Moses, he says, tell them. Moses, I send you on your, your task. Tell them that I am sent you. So when Jesus uses the phrase, the words, I am, he is saying that he is God. He's king, but not the kind of king that the people had in mind. He's the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah that people had in mind. He speaks and acts in unity with the Father. He exists through all, throughout all eternity. He's able to foretell and control events. He forgives. He pursues. He persuades. He redeems. He is powerful, and he gives strength. He never leaves you, and in his presence is peace. God saves. Jesus is God. Colon, semicolon, stop fearing. Do not be afraid. Stop your fearing. Amid the wondering and the disappointments and the doubts and the worries and the fears, stop fearing. Not because of a change in your circumstances, but because Jesus says, I am. And it's because Jesus is God that we can stop fearing. See, the crowds had a very small view of Jesus. And so Jesus becomes someone who they want to serve them. And his disciples had, a, had an inadequate view of God, of Jesus. And so their view is, whoa, fear, skepticism, doubt, and worries. You know, if your God is small, you have every right to be disappointed. If your God is small, you have every right to worry, to doubt, and to fear. But if your God comes closer to the one as he describes himself in his word, then you will not be overwhelmed or defeated by disappointments, anxieties, doubts, worries, and fears. Instead, they will be met with the overwhelming knowledge that God is in control, that he is compassionate, and that because he is love, he cannot act in any way other than in a loving way. He cannot. And if he says he is the I am, then the words do not fear will begin to resonate with you as they resonate with me. You see, our doubts and our worries reveal our fears. Think about it. Where our doubts and our worries lie, they reveal our fears. And in this world, we have a lot to be fearful of, a lot. But there's an interesting thing about fears in that as our fears reveal our idols, our fears reveal our idols. Who do you turn to or what do you turn to when you start fearing? Bank account? Well, at least I have a house. Job? Relationships? Our fears reveal our idols. What Jesus wants to show us is that he will be patient 
so that we will come to a greater, deeper understanding, a more accurate understanding of who he is. Then when he says, I am, we begin to get it. So many of us have spent time rowing, haven't we? Rowing. Rowing. I've just spent three years rowing. Three years. My mom passed, uh, my father passed away three years ago, and my mom came to live with us three years ago, and it's been quite a rowing experience. But a couple of, about a month or so ago, the end of June, I said to God, whoa, whoa uh, it's been three years. Where did the three years go? You know, God, um, I think I could do one more year. Okay. July 1st, just a couple of days after that, I write this in my journal. I'm tired of overseeing mom's care when Perla's out and the new caregivers' schedules are kind of piecemealed together. I'm dependent on your provision, but not just for filling the hours, but for the attitude as a witness and the attitude toward caring for my mom. Help her healing and bruises and the bleeding that comes with every new caregiver. Rowing, rowing, rowing. And my rowing cultivated my fears. So many times, this is only one journal entry, but so many times I've said, I have failed you so often. I've done this so poorly. So often it doesn't even, it would fill a brand new journal. I have failed. And I began to think, where else have I failed? I've probably failed as a daughter. How about a wife? And a mother. Grandmother. And a mother in love. And our fears reveal our idols. I had to spend some significant time in this. And I came up with two idols that my fears revealed. The idol of control and the idol of image. <coughs> Through the uh, experience I'll tell you about, that'll take a minute, I had the God-given courage, I don't know where it came from, but God, to say to one of my daughters, what are people gonna think? See, that's the image idol, right? What are people gonna think? And she said to me, those who know you will understand. And those who don't know you, doesn't matter what they think. Pretty good, Cammie. Pretty good. So three years of watching over mom's care. And then July 5th, she has labored breathing. July 6th, she has spent one day in the hospital. That was Wednesday. Thursday, the doctor tells me he's recommending hospice care. Thursday night, after our weekly family dinner, my son and my son-in-law, Tyler and Sean, come over and they dismantle her bed. My daughter, Adrian vacuums the room, readying it for hospice care. Friday morning, the hospital bed arrives. And so do the hospice care nurses. The doctor says a parameter for hospice care is that a patient will live maybe six months. 
So I took it to God. God, I told you I'd do a year. I'll do six months. So mom comes home on a Friday afternoon. She's on oxygen. The next day, her fourth, rather her third hospice care nurse at about 145 says, I cannot find a blood pressure reading. It's going to happen. So we gather around her. And if you know me or if you ever stand next to me during worship, you will know that I can't sing to save my life. <laughs> so I start singing to mom. I hold her close. And I sing Amazing Grace to her. And I sing God is so good to her. And I sing Jesus loves me to her. At the close of that song, the hospice nurse announces that she took her last breath at 153. At that moment, I prayed. I thanked God for mom's life. And I thanked him for the privilege and honor of escorting her into his presence. I was able to see how the presence of God transformed me amid all the rowing and the doubts and the worries and the fears, breaking down the idols. This God who forgives and pursues, persuades and redeems, who's powerful and who gives strength and who says he will never leave me. His presence brings peace and he delights in me. He says, stop fearing. So because God is God, and because Jesus is God, when he says, I am, he is with us in and every circumstance. Who you are and what you do, therefore, is of cosmic significance. Please don't sit there going, no, 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 that's not me, that's someone else, that's that person next to me. But because God is who he is, because Jesus is who he is, everything you do and who you are is of cosmic significance. But he values you too much to let you go through life with an inadequate view of him. And so it's during those times of rowing, during those times of fears and doubts and worries and dis disappointments that he comes through. Would you allow yourself to get to know him a little bit more? Would you allow yourself to let him show you more about himself? And would you let him show you the kind of relationship he desires to have with you? One, built on trust and not fear. Because as you get to know him, your trust quotient will rise. It is difficult to trust someone that you do not know. Would you join me in prayer? God, some of us have been rowing. And some of us have been rowing for a long time. And it has cultivated those doubts and worries and fears. And we, if we took time, would begin to see the idols that we have clung to. 
And perhaps part of that is an inadequate view of you, and you long so much to give us a better, clearer, precise picture of who you are. God, as we celebrate communion, may we lay down our fears and may we pick up a desire to know you more because it's difficult to know you, to trust you when we don't know you. So help us to know you more. Help us to know, Jesus, that you are the one who says, I am, do not fear. Thank you, your majesty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some music will play as we spend just a little bit of time in reflection and in communion. As you take of the bread and the cup, the bread reminds us, Jesus saying, this is my body given for you, and this is my blood shed for you. Would you remember him this way? I'll be back. Did you catch it? So I've been rowing for three years, and my husband just reminded me that I was rowing the wrong way. <laughs> I, it truly is safe to belong. I'd ask um, if our prayer team would remain just for a few minutes, and if you would like some prayer about fears, doubts, worries, anxieties, idols, and to be reminded that Jesus says, I am. Stop fearing. They will remain here for you. Would you stand for the benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May his countenance, may he lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace this week as he reminds you that he is, I am. You do not need to fear. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com participate.